Jesus of Nazareth taught his followers that the status quo is intolerable. We cannot ultimately rest in things as they are, nor in this world as it is. We stand as a people in fundamental defiance of the prevailing order, convinced that radical change is utterly essential, even inevitable. Now, we're not particularly unique in this passion, are we? I mean, if you think about it, not many people on this planet go to bed at night hoping that nothing ever changes in this world. The tension lies in what needs to change and how it should be changed. For the Christian, part of the how is addressed by prayer. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are reconciled to the Creator and the Sovereign Lord of the universe. And so it is as natural as breathing for us to ask God to intervene in this world for His glory. It is His world, and it was made for His glory. And so we pray to that end. On a grand scale, we rejoice indeed to labor with God in prayer for the shattering of the status quo with the return of Jesus Christ, for the submission of the nations to King Jesus, for the elimination of sin and the demise of Satan. Now that's a sermon all in of itself, to pray such large prayers. But when it comes to the narrower task of praying for change in my own personal life right now, well, here we really struggle to pray as we ought. In our weakness, we pray with an unholy tolerance of the status quo, while simultaneously pleading with God to satiate our selfish desires. The status quo, we pray, for instance, thank you, God, for providing my needs while refusing to repent of sin. Selfish desire. We pray, God, give me this and change that with no genuine concern for God's glory and no specific knowledge of His will. I invite you to the first chapter of Second Chronicles this morning where we find a narrative that includes a prayer by King Solomon. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, this passage serves as a solid word of divine counsel to us as we seek to progress beyond a state of spiritual feebleness in our prayer lives. A feebleness which looks only at us, a feebleness which looks only at our selfish desires, a feebleness which accepts the status quo. Before we consider this narrative, though, I think that it is highly instructive to understand the historical backdrop to 2 Chronicles specifically. From what we can ascertain, most of the original readers of this book were probably Jews born in Babylonian exile who had returned to the promised land for the first time. For the first time as individuals returning to the land as the people of God. So things are a bit fresh and new for them. We learn from other Old Testament historical books, such as Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, that these people were a rather discouraged bunch, and they were dealing with significant trials in their lives, tremendous challenges. The Chronicles were written, originally one book, to encourage these people of God by instructing them with a fairly sanitized 
often even, we might say, idealized summary of the history of the Judean kings. It seems, it's not entirely true, but a lot of the sin has been cut out. Because it's being written to discourage people who need to see what God has done in the past. And so, First Chronicles summarizes First and Second Samuel. And Second Chronicles summarizes First and Second Kings. With, as I mentioned, a lot of the sin cut out. In essence, what is the chronicler saying? It seems that the chronicler argues that the way forward for the returning Jews is to look backward to their heritage. And to look forward in hope to the promises of God to His people. Indeed, the chronicle serves as a sort of second genesis for these returning exiles, and the parallels are really remarkable. Like Genesis, the chronicles start with of whom? Of course, with Adam. And they end with the prospect of returning to the promised land. Second Chronicles 36, we have Cyrus's edict in 538 BC for the Jews to go up to Jerusalem. It's interesting. It's right where the book of Genesis ends. Genesis 50, 24, and 25, there's a reference there to the people of Israel going up to the promised land. It is, in other words, for these readers, a new day, a new day for these Judean exiles who are called to a fresh start in the promised land. To go up to Jerusalem, they're already there, then in that sense, really, to go up to Yahweh, to meet with God afresh and anew. And so in this message to these people, they're integral to this call on the chronicler's part is a focus upon King David, who is Judah's most important son, and on Solomon, who is David's most important son. David and Solomon are held up as the standard by which the other kings are judged. Good kings, as one commentator puts it, incarnate David and Solomon, and so will the readers. In the first chapter of 2 Chronicles, then, we have the righteous example of Solomon which begins to unfold. Now, again, there's sins of David that are not included here, and there's sins of Solomon that are not included in the Chronicles. But looking at it from this perspective written to these individuals, Solomon is held up as an example of righteousness. We need to bring that to this text. Remember the readers and remember what is being done with Solomon here. The first verse of this first chapter, 2 Chronicles, starts with a superscription of his reign just sort of a banner over all that is accomplished, and really a summation of what we find in chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Verse 23 of 1 Chronicles 29, we read there a little bit more fully that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the leaders and the mighty men and also all the sons of King David pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. It took a while for that to happen, but he brought it to that place. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in all Israel. Why is that? The question is raised. We want to know. What is it that makes Solomon unique? Why has God uniquely blessed this man? From this summary statement then in verse 1, the chronicler moves to consider the first official public act of Solomon's reign. Verse 2, Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, 
to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses, and Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there at Gibeon. So Solomon was crowned king in Jerusalem, we find in 1 Chronicles 28. But his first official act as king is to go on a trip. It was not to throw an inaugural ball, but rather to convene an inaugural sacrifice in worship of Yahweh. So get get the picture here. We're in the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. And Solomon gathers all of the leaders around him, and and he says, we're going on a trip. Seven mile journey would have been a very slow process and probably much ceremony along the way on seven miles from Jerusalem to Gibeon. Why Gibeon? The chronicler explains to his readers, remember they're more familiar with the temple in Jerusalem than this Gibeon place and what's going on there. So he explains that the tent of meeting of Moses that Moses constructed during Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land was pitched here in the town of Gibeon. Just allow me to read Exodus 33 and verse 7. Just think of this in light of Exodus 33. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. In a unique way, the tent of meeting is yet outside the camp, outside now the camp of Jerusalem. And Solomon goes out there to meet with God. Why this tent of meeting was at Gibeon, we do not know. Apparently it was moved there after Saul slaughtered the priests at Nob in 1 Samuel 21. All we know is that Solomon commences his reign by seeking the Lord at this unique tent. As a side note, the chronicler explains, remembering the original recipients here, and it's helpful to us, obviously, as well. Verse 4, but David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. The ark has been in Shiloh, was in Shiloh, until you remember Eli's sons made off with it and used it as a luck charm in battle against the Philistines, and that whole debacle. The ark, through a number of events, eventually ends up at Kiriath-Jerim, But King David went down on his own pilgrimage to bring that ark up to Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. Solomon would later return from Gibeon back to Jerusalem and would indeed offer sacrifices before this ark. But the point here is that first he went to Gibeon before the altar of the Lord. And verse 5 brings that out. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly resorted to it. So this gathering of people, these leaders, as they make their way from Jerusalem to Gibeon, gather around this altar. The altar Bezalel constructed along Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land was the official, legal, God-given place of sacrifice. It would have been very doable to not even mention Bezalel here. There's no mention of him with reference to the ark. But why mention this individual? I think we should grasp this. Here is a man in Bezalel who is endowed with unique wisdom. 
Exodus 35, 31 says, to construct this altar to God's specifications. He's a man of wisdom. Solomon, as this book bears out, will be the builder of the temple. Indeed, the chronicler emphasizes that aspect of Solomon's reign. So I think what we have here is Solomon will become something of an antitype to Bezalel. One greater than Bezalel, who will construct not merely the tabernacle of God, but one who will construct through his wisdom the temple on Mount Zion. It is this Solomon who comes before this altar constructed by Bezalel. And hold on, the journey will take us eventually to this very one building out the temple. But here, back to our event at Gibeon. So all of these leaders of Israel gathered around this altar, and we read at verse 6 that Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now here's a place where read the Bible through in a year fails us. Because generally we don't stop and think about these kinds of things for very long, because we keep making progress in the Bible. But stop here and think about this. Think of all of these leaders of Israel making this long journey of seven miles to Gibeon and gathering around this altar and a thousand animals being slaughtered and burned on that altar. Imagine that scene. This would have taken an immense amount of time at an extraordinary cost. Solomon was sending a clear message no one could forget, a clear message at the start of his reign that he was a man of singular devotion to God. His reign would go forward on the shoulders of Yahweh after a long, exhausting, yet I'm sure invigorating day of worship. Solomon, very likely with clear conscience and glad heart, pillowed his weary head and slept at Gibeon that night. And while he sleeps, according to 1 Kings 3, in a dream, God makes an offer to Solomon. Verse 7, In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. This is not a dream you shake off and dismiss. This was a kind of dream that you knew was God speaking to you. Ask what I shall give you. I mean, it sounds almost like the fairy tale genie who emerges in misty swirls from the oil lamp and intones, Your wish is my command. Now there might be more to that little legend than we sometimes think. The difference is, of course, that this is no fairy tale. And this is no genie. It is the word of the living God. What would you say if you were Solomon on this night? We read of Solomon's Famous request, beginning at verse 8, Solomon said to God as he prefaces his request in prayer, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. God had promised David a dynasty. And Solomon rejoiced that God had chosen him as the next king in that dynasty. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 17 as we remember this promise from God to King David. 
First Chronicles chapter 17. God speaks to David at verse 11. If we just summarize by drawing from verse 11 and following, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, that is, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, that is Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David, spoke the word of the Lord. The promise of God. So back to Gibeon and Solomon. In a sense, Solomon is saying what to God? What more could I ask, God? You have chosen me to serve as king over your chosen people who number as the dust of the earth in fulfillment of your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 13, Genesis 28, this dust of the earth numbers is referenced. You have done beyond what we could imagine or think. But he continues, verse 10, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? Solomon's request is very straightforward. He desires wisdom and knowledge. To go in and out before the people, an idiomatic reference to a king's leadership of the nation. It's used in military context, in an administrative context. It fits certainly his religious leadership that is taking place right here at Gibeon at this time. We don't use that phrase going in and out among them, but they would have been understood that way. These were, says Solomon, God's people. And Solomon humbly sensed his abject need for God to help him and to give him what he did not have. Remember King Ahaz in Isaiah 7. God says, ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to trouble you with that in this pious play. I'm not going to ask for a sign. God obviously gives him one anyway, but Solomon honors God's offer here. I think he honors his offer because he sees his need. He was a young man. This was a large nation. It was great need. The status quo then in this regard was intolerable. Solomon longed to receive God's wisdom, wisdom he didn't have, wisdom that he knew he needed for this day and this time. Now let's stop for just a moment and think, what is biblical wisdom, biblical understanding? Certainly included for Solomon a capacity to understand the universe that God had made. The ability to see the universe as God's creation and to discern its basic design. Solomon was given unprecedented wisdom in sensing that. But we must also understand that wisdom isn't just knowing a lot of facts about the things that we see, but it is rather tapping the mind of God to see that even in the physical universe, there is an evidence of a moral design. Remember Jesus, how often... Did he draw on this point? Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the sparrow, the birds. He saw in God's creative order a witness to the glory and to the ways of the creator of that order. 
And that is what wisdom is. It is the capacity then to live with moral skill. The ability to discern God's will and to discern accurately how people and beliefs line up with that will. Foolishness is spending our days where we naturally spend them, wanting everybody to line up with our will. Being frustrated with the people that don't see things the way we see them. They're out of sync with things. The people that aren't fulfilling our dreams and our desires and are not lifting us up the way that we want to be lifted up and honored. But biblical wisdom is seeing our lives and the lives of all around us from God's perspective. How does He see them? What does He think? What does He think of me? It is the ability to then to discern my life and how it accords with God's purposes, and then the motivation to make the proper response. Solomon was, as I said, a young man. He was a young man, however, with immense power, prestige, and wealth. And he may easily have spurned God's counsel and become filled with himself, wanting only what would add to his power, prestige, and wealth. He had it set up ideally so that he could make everyone around him, at least externally, agree with him and see him for who he really was. He had an unprecedented opportunity to seek his own wisdom here. And to spend the rest of his days living the high life, keeping everybody in order. But he comes humbly before the Lord and he says, I want this one thing. I want to see life the way you see it. I want wisdom. Give me, God, your mind. And God answers Solomon, acknowledging what he has chosen. Verse 11, God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you don't know how else to read this but to say that this is something Solomon didn't have. God is giving him something he didn't have, or at least increasing its supply. It's an answer to his request. And what is more, God promises further in verse 12, I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. Now, we certainly do not get the sense here of a stingy God, do we? This account reveals a God who is gracious and who gives liberally. The key is that Solomon did not set his heart on material riches and personal honor, but on the capacity to live his life in sync with God's creative purposes. He wanted above all wealth the mind of God. And so... The summary statement is made. Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem. He had met with God there. And he reigned over Israel with power and glory. There's a lot of ways, I think, to look at this narrative. And perhaps one of the most tempting is to say, well, I wish that had happened to me. 
Wow, could you imagine God come and says, make me issue a request. I wish God would make me such an offer. Well, we must consider that obviously God's gift to Solomon of wealth and honor and power and prestige was obviously specific to Solomon. There are some who would like to say that it's not, and should we just pray with faith, we would be rich as well. It's foolishness. This is specific to Solomon in that respect, but there's another respect in which it is not specific to him. When it comes to the offer of wisdom from God, the access to the mind of God, James 1 and verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and listen to it, and it will be given him. The issue is not that Solomon was granted a unique favor from God, and certainly he was. But the issue is that we lack passion to avail ourselves of the very same offer. Ask of God to receive his mind and his knowledge and his wisdom, and he will give it to you. Liberally. Faithfully. It's not a matter of God being stingy and greedy. It is apparently a matter of us wanting other things. Rather than pray that God would remove our enemy, may we learn to pray for the moral skill to endure and to love our enemies with long-suffering patience. Rather than pray that God would grant me a mate as a single adult, May I learn to pray that God would grant me wisdom to employ my singleness as a tool to serve Jesus. The moral skill to combat loneliness in a God-honoring way. The wisdom to avoid temptation and insight to see potential mates as God sees them. Rather than stop at praying that God reverse my financial or social trial, May I learn to pray for the moral skill to be content in all circumstances and to walk by faith in God's purposes. Rather than stop at praying that God would simply restore my health, may I learn to pray for the wisdom that understands God's strength is made perfect in weakness and to pray for the skill of patient endurance to the glory of God. Rather than pray that God would take us off a hard path we're called to walk, may we learn to pray for the moral skill to say with sincerity, not my will, but yours be done. It is for this mind of God that we need to pray in all areas of our life. And do we? Is this how we pray? Is this how we seek God Or do we simply ask Him to remove the things we don't like and to give us the things we want? Or do we fail altogether to pray against the status quo? Christian, we have something far greater than a genie in a lamp offering to grant us any wish. We have the Word of the living God who said, Ask! And it shall be given to you. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And even with sincerity of heart that pleads, I want God your mind, we realize that as Romans 8 says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But may we find comfort in these follow-up words that the Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. You and I need the mind of God and we need wisdom that we don't have. Praise God, the Spirit is praying in our behalf to give us that wisdom. We can mess things up. We can walk in moral folly. We can cut off the word and the wisdom of God But if we know Christ truly as our personal Savior from sin, we know that this ministry of the Spirit is there. And with groanings too deep for words, the Spirit is praying that we would have God's mind. And so our calling is to defy the status quo by discerning what God wants and to defy our selfish desires by wanting what God wants, and thus learning to pray until His will becomes reality. The ultimate change of status quo, which we all must seek in our human standing, is to come to prayer before God and to turn from our sin to receive Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We know the great message of this Word of God, that Jesus Christ came to earth as the sinless substitute and Lamb of God to pay the penalty of our sin. And the confirmation of the Father through the resurrection power of Christ to say that death has been defeated, that sin has been addressed, That the condemnation has been answered by the sacrifice of Christ. And we know as we started this service this morning, earlier today, according to 1 Corinthians, that all of this is mere foolishness to a world that is lost in its own ignorance and sin. It makes no sense that one man would die for us. Not many wealthy, not many strong, not many wise have been chosen. We come as the fools of this earth to embrace a message that to the lost mind is utter foolishness. But there is that phrase in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, which is of such great comfort, that Jesus Christ now has been made our wisdom and our redemption. Jesus becomes our wisdom. The first concept of biblical knowledge and understanding and wisdom is not to start with a bunch of information, to pack our minds full of facts, and by the mercy and grace of God, this is essential that we continue to stretch our minds to learn more and more there is to know. But the first step is not simply to pack our minds with information, The first step is to know a person and to enter into living relationship with Him, Jesus Christ. I understand and need to be cautious here 
that we do come to saving faith in Christ through knowledge. We must know this gospel message. We must engage our minds in the facts and the truths of the gospel. But it's not simply a sterile understanding of the facts. This is a message that leads us into personal relationship with God through Christ. Then Jesus becomes to us our wisdom. We know Him. We walk in fellowship with Him. As we enter into the communion of the church, we are baptized to indicate that we have identified with His death and resurrection. We are so bound up with the person of Jesus that we died and rose with Him. We eat Him, so to speak, in the communion meal because we so commune with His being and His person that He becomes to us wisdom. What we need to strive to see as we strive for the wisdom of God is the face of Jesus Christ. His character. His beliefs. Indeed, His wisdom. By the mercy of God, entering into relationship with the Lord through Christ, Jesus is made our wisdom. He becomes and is the mind of God with us and in us as the Spirit groans in our behalf that we would gain the wisdom that is in the character of Christ, worked out in human flesh by His grace in His people. It is for this wisdom that we need to pray. What is the trial, Christian? What is the battle? I look at your faces And I struggle with tears and a broken heart as I know the trials that some of you face, indeed that all of us in some sense do. There's weakness, there's sin, there's struggle, there's heartache, there's disappointment. We deal with this every day. But may we leave this place today knowing that what is more important than God taking away these trials is knowing the mind of God to deal with them to His glory and honor. May we plead with Him in prayer to know Christ, to know the One who is the living Word and who is made to us wisdom through the Gospel. Let's pray for that. Let's bow. Our Father, As little children, we come before you with heavy hearts in one sense because we realize how weak our prayer lives are. In light of the call that we see here in the example of Solomon, we know if we're honest with ourselves how quickly and how readily we would ask for something else. God, we struggle to know how to pray for wisdom in the various trials and struggles that we face. But I pray that you would teach us and that we might trust in faith that you are indeed working through your Spirit to teach us how to pray. Indeed, that the Spirit is praying in our behalf. As little children, we struggle. But we also have hope. We have hope in what you have promised to be doing in and through us, and we have hope to know that through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have access to your mind. 
And I pray that that discernment, that that wisdom would be ours. We don't sense it. We see its weakness as we relate to the lost world, as we relate to our temptations, as we relate to our disappointments, as we relate to one another. We realize how small we are as people and how desperately we need to think like Jesus thought, to act as He thought, to see the world as He saw it, to see ourselves as you see us, and to get off this incessant desire for everyone else to see things the way we see it. To honor us as we want to be honored to agree with us in order to make our life easier, to do what we want without any thought of what you want. God, we bring before you our sin, our weakness, and I, as I stand before this assembly and represent them in prayer, may you hear the ascending prayers of your people, and may we indeed be pleading that you would grant us wisdom. If there is one among us who is lost in ignorance, in this damning ignorance of Jesus Christ, I plead, Father, that you would bring that one out of condemnation and into the light, even this day, by your grace and your calling, that you would save those bound in the shackles of ignorance and moral failure. I pray, Father, that you would hear that cry of our heart as an assembly and that you'd grant us all the wisdom that is in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.